All right, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 17. The last couple weeks, we've been in the book of Matthew. Last week, Pastor Jonathan Doris came in from Tulsa and preached on this great and wonderful and generous God who gives generously. Well, this week, we're going to look at the passage after that, and we're going to, sh- we're going to see uh, and learn about what He gives. We learned that He's a generous, a generous God, and now we're going to learn some about all this generosity and what He gives to us. So please stand from the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink the cup, but to sit at my right hand and sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant with the other, with the, at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, in heaven we come to Your Word as needy people. We come as people who want greatness, but have no idea what that looks like. We come as people who are made in Your image, who are made to reflect You, to glorify You, but we do an awfully poor job of doing it. So we pray right now that You would bring us good news from the Gospel. Show us what kingdom greatness looks like. Show us how You have given it to us. And show us how to go out and live out that kingdom greatness when we leave these walls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, I went on vacation like most of you do, and uh, we were really excited about vacations. It was going to be a great vacation, and it was going to be a great vacation because we were going to do three things. First, we were going to build a fence around our backyard, and then we were going to go on a trip to Minnesota, South Dakota, and Denver, spend about 10 days on vacation, and then hopefully I was going to get to play a round of golf. I was really excited about it. That's like an ideal vacation for me, and it was going to be great. But as you can probably imagine, it did not turn out the way that I wanted it to turn out. It started off with building the fence. Uh, I called a, a college student to come over and help me. 
And whenever we got started building the fence, we quickly realized that my ground is solid clay. There's about this much topsoil, and then it's just clay after that. So we went to the store, we rented an auger, we brought it back, we started digging down into the clay, and the auger couldn't even get two feet down. It would only dig halfway, so we'd have to hand dig the rest of the holes. So we spent one entire day in the hot Oklahoma heat digging 35 holes for my fence. And it was awful. We came out the next day and I thought, we're going to get all these posts set today. It's going to be awesome. Well, whenever we got out there and we set the first post, we realized that all my holes were a little off. They had to be exactly on eight-foot centers, and they were all off just a little bit. So not only did we have to pour the concrete and set the post, we had to redig each one of those holes to get them the exact distance apart. Another day in a hot Oklahoma heat. We went out the third day, and I thought, all right, we're going to get these panels put up, because I bought these eight-foot uh, panels for the fence. We put up the first few panels, and then I realized that none of my panels were going to be the same height. I knew my yard was on level, but I didn't realize that I wasn't going to have like any sections where there was this nice straight fence. It was all going to be this stair step kind of thing. And I saw myself spending another day out in the hot Oklahoma heat building this not great fence. It wasn't going to be pretty. I wasn't going to be able to put it on Pinterest or Instagram or any of those things. And I realized that I was not the great do-it-yourself dad that I wanted to be. And then my children, they wanted to help, so they started trying to help. Well, that just made me mad, and I lashed out at my daughter, and my student was there, so I set a bad example for my student. And finally, I just got so angry, I said, I quit. I'm done. I'm not working on this fence anymore. I went inside, I sat down with my wife, Sherry, and I said, all right, I'm not building that fence. We're just going to pay somebody else to do it. Well, as we started talking about going on vacation and paying for somebody else to finish this fence, we realized that we weren't going to have the money to go on vacation and pay for the fence. So what did we do? We canceled half the vacation. I broke a promise to my wife and my kids that I had made like six months ago. And everybody was upset. <laughs> and once again, I realized I was not the great dad that I wanted to be. Well, that kind of passed. And after a few days of resting, my wife was gracious enough to let me go play golf. So I gladly obliged. I went to the golf course. I got to the first hole. I stood on the tee box. And I thought, all right, I can build a fence but I can hit a golf ball. Boom! Shank. Horrible golf shot. I went out and proceeded to play the worst round of golf in the summer and maybe the three worst holes in my life. And I realized I was not the great athlete that I want to be. Now eventually, the fence got built. My father-in-law helped me. Thank God for father-in-laws, right? They know how to do things. He helped me. We went on vacation. Everything was okay. But as I've gotten some distance from vacation, I've kind of processed it, what I learned was this. I had a desire for greatness, but I didn't have the ability to achieve it. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever come face to face with your desire to do something great, good, for the kingdom, for your spouse, and you just can't do it? I would guess there are probably three types of people in this room this morning. There are probably people who desperately want to be great, and they're working really, really hard at it. And a lot of them are probably sitting right here. They're college students who are about to start the semester. and like, yes, this is going to be an awesome semester. It's going to be great. I'm going to make the best grades I've ever made. And so they're getting ready to work for it. Then there are people who want to be great, but they've given up. They've kind of been beaten up by life, and they realize, okay, I'm just going to be the guy 
who sits at the desk in the office that nobody knows about, and they just kind of quit. And there might be people in here who have actually achieved some measure of greatness. They made goals, they set them, they had dreams, and they got there. And now they're working so hard to maintain it. And it feels like a burden. Well, if you are one of those three people, there is good news for you in Matthew chapter 20. And the good news is this, that the greatness that you desire and the greatness that God requires is given to you by Jesus. It's not a greatness that you earn. It's a greatness that you receive by grace. So let's look at that this morning from Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at three things. A desire for greatness, a definition of greatness, and a gift of greatness. A desire, a definition, and a gift. We see in verses 20 to 21 that the disciples have a desire for greatness. James and John's mother comes to Jesus and she says, Hey, I want my sons to sit at your right and your left in the kingdom. Now, when you look at this, you think, Man, she's doing pretty good. She comes to Jesus. He's the right person. She comes in the right way. She kneels. So she's got some humility. And she makes this request. Not necessarily a bad request, right? She just wants her kids to be on the honor roll like every good mother wants, right? She has a desire for greatness. Then you look at James and John. They have a desire for greatness. They want this. In one of the other versions, we see that James and John also said, yes, we want to sit at your left and your right. Then we get down to verse 24, and we see that the other disciples get really mad at James and John whenever they make this request. Now, why do you think they got so mad? Because if James and John are sitting up there, then Peter and all the other guys can't. So I think they have a desire for greatness too. I think in all of us, there is this internal desire for greatness. There's this desire to be in positions of glory and honor and power. And that's not necessarily a bad desire. Genesis 1 tells us that we are created in the image of God. We are made in His likeness. We're made in the likeness of a great God to reflect Him. To reflect His glory and honor over all creation. And then Psalm 8 tells us that we were crowned with glory and honor. That we were set above all things. And so that desire for greatness comes out of being created for greatness. Out of wanting it. Because that's what we were created for. And so in some ways, I think we're all a little bit like Walter Mitty. If you read the short story of, of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, I don't know if this is going to be like that. I've never read it. But I've seen the movie, right? And in the movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Walter Mitty is a nobody. He develops pictures for a magazine for one of the greatest photographers in the world. And everybody loves these pictures, but nobody knows anything about Walter Mitty. He just hangs out in the light room. Well, he wants a girlfriend, so he does what everybody does these days. He develops an online dating profile. And on, on the online dating profile, they ask him for all of his notable achievements. And he puts, none. They ask him, is there anything interesting about you? And he says, none. Have you done any great things and been on any great adventures? None. He's got absolutely nothing. He is totally mediocre at best, probably below average in the world's mind. He meets the girl of his dreams. And what happens when he meets the girl of his dreams? He starts to 
fantasize about all these great things that he's done. He imagines rescuing her cat from a burning building. He imagines building great works of architecture. He imagines saving her life and whisking her off her feet and being this great hero that he desperately wants to be. I think because we're created in the image of God, all of us are a little bit like Walter Mitty. In our minds, we have these great things that we want to do. So it's very important that we look at how Jesus responds to the disciples. And what we see, I think, is interesting. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. Look at the way Jesus responds. He says, do you really know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say yes. And he doesn't rebuke them and say, that was wrong, you shouldn't have asked for that. He says, well, I can't give it to you. But you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. Now, why would he do that? He does that because he knows. He knows we are created for glory and honor. So what he does is instead of rebuking them, he redefines greatness for them. And that's the second thing we see here. We see a definition of greatness. If you look at verses 25 through 30, sorry, 25 through 30, uh, 28, you'll see that Jesus gives them a definition of greatness. And what he does is he contrasts worldly greatness with kingdom greatness. So let's look back at the text and read that again so we can remember it. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would ever be great among you must be your servant, and who would ever be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he begins talking about the Gentiles and worldly greatness. And he says, you know how they define greatness. Greatness is defined by sitting on top, by being the CEO, by being in the position of power and authority and having a bunch of people underneath you. Right? Greatness, this would be the modern day equivalent of being Donald Trump. Like, you're awesome at life and you win and everybody else does your bidding. Okay? Uh, to be great in the eyes of the world is to have other people serve you. To have worldly greatness is to have other people sacrificing for you. To have worldly greatness is to have other people submitting to you. It's to be on top in the position of power and authority. Now what's the problem with that? The problem is this, that sin has perverted that desire. Sin has changed us so that we don't even, we don't know how to have uh, good, godly greatness. Sin has caused us to over-desire greatness. It's caused us to oppress other people. It's caused us to develop this idea of worldly greatness that ultimately is oppressive and defeating and burns everybody out. Think about it this way. How many times have you thought I'm just not getting the respect I deserve. And then what comes after that? It's probably not anything good. Probably not. I remember a friend who was telling me that his marriage was on the verge of collapse. It was on the verge of disaster. He had already engaged in an emotional affair. He was on the verge of engaging in a physical affair. And to save it, they went to counseling. And one of the questions the counselor asked him was, what do you want from your wife? And he looked at the counselor and said, I just don't think she gives me the respect I deserve. 
And the counselor said, well, based on what you've done, I don't think you deserve very much respect. But that thought, that idea of you're not giving me what I deserve, led him into sin. It led him to oppression. It led him to cheat on his wife. That is an ungodly use of this desire for glory and honor and power that oppresses people. It also burns us out. If you're the person who's trying to get glory and honor, then you know that it's exhausting. If you're the one who's trying to work your way up to the top, then you know it will wear you out. And even in the Christian world, we have this distorted view of what greatness looks like that just exhausts people. I'll never forget this blog that I read once. It was written by a Christian mother. And she was describing everything she had to do to be the great Christian mom. And it started out something like this. She said, I've got to get up early and I've got to make my coffee, but it can't be regular coffee. It's got to be organic, fair trade coffee because I have to care about the environment. And then I've got to have my quiet time, but I can't just read it. I've got to study it. I've got to meditate on it. After I do that, I've got to go take the laundry and put it in the washer so it can get started. And I'm going to go out and go on a run. And while I'm on the run, I'm going to listen to Christian music. And when I'm not listening to Christian music, I'm going to pray without ceasing. Then when I come back, I'm going to take the laundry out of the washer and put it in the dryer. Then I'm going to go start breakfast because i got to get all this done before the kids get up. I'm supposed to laugh at that. That's crazy. And she went on and on in this blog about all the things she had to do to be a great mother. And she said, I can't do it. It's wearing me out. Students, you know to be a great student, you've got to have great grades. You've got to be a nice person, but you can't be too nice. You've got to be moral, but you can't be too moral. You've got to look good. You've got to act right. And you've got to make it all look easy. Right? Fathers, you know that you've got, you can't just be content. You've got to work your way to the top. You've got to get to the top of your field. You've got to be the best. You can't just sit in a cubicle. You've got to be the guy who walks around with a cup of coffee. Right? And ultimately, that just burns us out and it wears us out because we can't do it. And it's sin that perverts that desire and distorts it. I read a quote recently by somebody who really described this, this feeling well. She, she said this, All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and interesting. And I find a way to get myself out of that. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. How many of us could say that about our Christian life? I'm pushed by a fear of never being mediocre. Or about our work lives, or about our marriage. You know who said that? Madonna. I bet you never thought you and Madonna would have something in common. And it, you probably don't, and that's a good thing. But I think there's this com common condition of human fallenness where none of us want to be mediocre. We all want to be great, and we're all operating under the world's definition of what that looks like. So what Jesus does is He redefines greatness for us. And He gives us a beautiful view of greatness that expands the kingdom and provides rest. Jesus describes greatness as three things. Serving, submitting, and sacrificing. He says that whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. 
A servant is somebody who meets the needs of other people. Kingdom greatness looks like a janitor I recently heard about. This janitor worked in the Oval Office where the president works. Every night she would come in and she would clean the office. But while she was cleaning the office and nobody saw her doing this seemingly insignificant work, you know what she was doing? She was praying for the president. No matter what party he was, no matter what his approval rating was, she prayed for the president and she cleaned. And Jesus says, that is greatness. You know who's great right now? The people in the nursery changing diapers. Changing poopy, stinky, nasty diapers so the rest of us can worship Jesus. Jesus says, that's greatness. Because you're meeting the needs of other people. So greatness looks like serving. Greatness also looks like submitting. right? Jesus says, and whoever be first among you must be your slave. Now we don't have time to go into all that the term slave means. It doesn't mean slavery as in the South that was cruel and oppressive. The essence of slavery is somebody who submits to a master. Somebody who knows there is a higher power that's in charge and they submit to that higher power. So kingdom greatness looks like people who realize that there is a godly chain of authority with God above us and then other people and then us. And we submit to them. Kingdom greatness looks like Chuck Colson. Younger people, you probably don't know who Chuck Colson is. But Chuck Colson was part of the Watergate scandal. He was one of Nixon's advisors. Well, after the Watergate scandal, he became a Christian. And then as it was all coming out, they offered him a plea bargain. They said, if you will agree to all these things and kind of rat these people out, then we won't send you to prison. But Chuck Colson knew that he had to submit to a higher authority. He said, no, I did these things. I'm not going to shift the blame. I'm going to submit to it. So he went to prison. And while he was in prison, his life was changed, and he started one of the greatest prison ministries that's ever existed. And thousands came to know Christ because he submitted to a higher authority. That's what kingdom greatness looks like. Kingdom greatness looks like children who submit to their parents lovingly and reverently because they know that they have a great heavenly father and their earthly father sits in their heavenly father's place. Kingdom greatness looks like men who submit to their bosses, not because they just want to get their bosses approval, but because they know they have a heavenly father that loves them and approves of them. Kingdom greatness comes from wives who love and submit even sometimes to their children. They sit and they talk to their children and they get their opinions and they take their input and they try to make a decision that's best for the family and not what is just going to keep them from being most exhausted. Kingdom greatness comes from submitting. It comes from serving and submitting. And lastly, it comes from sacrificing. Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to do what? And to give His life as a ransom for many. Giving your life is sacrificing. It means that to have kingdom greatness means that you have to give up something that you have a rightful ownership in. Jesus had a right to His life, but He gave it up for other people. Kingdom greatness looks like the university president, the the president of the University of Cincinnati, who three years in a row has declined to receive his bonus. And instead, he's given it to the university for scholarship money. Kingdom greatness looks like a spouse who comes home, and before they walk into that door, before they enter into that hard marriage, that spouse that doesn't appreciate them, that doesn't love them, doesn't care for them, they say, all right, I'm going to put aside my own rights and my own hurts 
and I'm going to go in and I'm going to love that spouse. I'm going to sacrifice for them. Kingdom greatness looks like college students who don't just go out there and try to get theirs and try to work for their own grades and their own time and their own money, but they give up some of those things. Their time and their money and their energy for other students. They sacrifice. Jesus says that's what kingdom greatness is like. And Jesus says that is what is going to expand the kingdom and that's what's going to provide rest. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom. And He says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed. But when you plant it, it grows up into a great tree. Then He says something beautiful and fascinating. He says, and in that tree, birds nest and have their home. Isn't that fascinating? Birds nest. That's where they rest. When you, ex- when you live out this idea of kingdom greatness, you actually find rest, and the kingdom expands, and then other people find rest in it. That's what greatness looks like. It comes from serving and submitting and sacrificing. It comes from living our lives as a living sacrifice, just like Jesus did. But we all know that that's hard, and it's impossible to do. Right? As soon as we start to say, okay, I'm going to serve, I'm going to submit, I'm going to sacrifice, and we go out and try to do it, we realize, oh, this is really hard. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. And I can't do that. I was uh, meeting with a, uh, a couple recently, and the, the, uh, their, I was doing their premarital counseling, and I saw this future husband come face-to-face with this reality. He was telling me about a conflict that they had had, he had told his fiance that he on Friday he was going to go to Tulsa. He was going to write thank you cards with her, which guys we all know is like our favorite thing to do in the whole world, right? Well, lo and behold, Friday rolls around and he's tired from work and his buddies want to go out and play golf. So he calls up his fiance and he's like, hey, uh, do I really have to come to Tulsa and sign those thank you cards? And of course they get into a fight. So we're talking about it in premarital counseling and the guy looks at me and he goes, do I really have to keep every promise that I make to my wife? And I said, yup. I said, that's what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's what it means to live like Jesus. And he just put his head down. Face to face with what it took to be a great husband, and he realized he couldn't do it. When you try to live this out, that's what's going to happen to you. And the great thing is that Christianity is not a religion that just gives you a how-to to be great. That's not it. There are other religions that will show you how to be great and they will tell you to do those same three things. Serve, submit, and sacrifice. But there's no other religion that will tell you that God Himself came to do those things for you because you can't do them. But that's exactly what Jesus tells us that He did in the text. In 17-19, through it describes Jesus' life. And He says He is going to Jerusalem to do what? to suffer, and to die. And then, as you go through this description of the exchange between He and the mother and the disciples, you realize that everything that Jesus asked them to do, He did whenever He went to Jerusalem. He talks about the cup. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You know what that cup is? That cup is the cup of God's wrath. His holy and just wrath poured out on sin. Then when you get down to this description of greatness, it says that you've got to be a servant. That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't meet His own needs. He met our needs. 
on the cross. He served us. It says you've got to submit. Jesus submitted to God the Father, and He submitted to an unjust earthly government because that's what it took to save us. And He says that we've got to sacrifice. That's exactly what Jesus did. He sacrificed His life all the way to death for us. And we see that Jesus' life was one long story of serving, submitting, and sacrificing to save us. To rescue us. To ransom us. As the text says, it says, and He gave His life as a ransom for many. Now, why do you have to give His life as a ransom? A ransom is something you pay somebody else to free somebody. So why did He have to ransom us? He had to ransom us because the penalty of falling short of the glory of God is sin. And sin has enslaved us. And sin has trapped us. And somebody had to pay for that sin to set us free. You see, the worst part about me and my fence building was not that I couldn't build a good fence. It's that I actually thought that building a good fence would make me great. I, did, I tried to define greatness apart from God. You know what that is? That's treason. And if you think for one second that you can be great by going out and serving and submitting and sacrificing on your own, then that's cosmic treason. That means that your righteousness is filthy rags and Jesus had to die to pay that sin to free you and rescue you. That's what his entire life was about. His entire life was just like Harry Potter's. It was all about death. On our summer to-do list, we had finished the Harry Potter series. So we finally finished the last movie of Harry Potter. And I finally see why everybody loves it. College students are like, amen, thank you. Right? Katie, last semester, my intern, said, I told her I'd never finish the series. And she said, how could you minister to college students? It's like, I guess I better watch it. I don't know. But at the end of Harry Potter, Harry looks into this pool. And if you haven't seen Harry Potter, it's a, a, a long book series, a long movie series about uh, a little uh, a wizard boy who is battling, battling the great evil wizard, Lord Voldemort. Right? And so you see this story unfold through all of the books. It's all about Harry battling Lord Voldemort. But Harry doesn't really quite know what's going on until the very end. He looks into this pool of water and Harry sees his entire life flash before his eyes. He sees everything from beginning to end. He sees his, his, his birth. He sees the death of his parents. He sees all the... the the battles with Voldemort that have been going on. And he gets to the very end and he sees that the only way he's going to beat Voldemort is if he dies. His entire life has been one long march to death. And that's what Jesus' life was like. It was one long, slow march to death. Why? Because that's what it took to save us. And that made him great. And when you receive His life as a gift, and you believe in Him, and you trust in Him, and you come to Him and say, I'm not great, but I know that you are, then He ransoms you, and His greatness becomes your greatness. And Colossians 3 describes this in a beautiful way. Colossians 3 tells us that our lives are hid with Christ. If you're a Christian, you're not just here, your life is with Christ in heaven. And do you know where Christ is in heaven right now? He is sitting on the throne of God, ruling and reigning. 
that means that that's where you are. That in Christ, you have the greatest greatness that you could ever imagine. If you're sitting at your desk in your office and you feel like a peon, you're not just there, you're sitting on the throne of heaven. If you're a mom and you are swamped in all the stuff that you have to do, you're not just there, you are sitting on the throne of heaven. Your life is hid with Christ on high. And when you believe that and you start to live that out, that's when you can actually love and serve and submit and sacrifice to other people. Because if you try to do it for yourself, then it's manipulation. But if you do it because Jesus has given you His greatness, then you're being exactly who Jesus created you to be. And you're actually going to give people rest. That's how the Gospel works. The Gospel works through death and resurrection. And every day when you go out and you live out that death and resurrection of Christ, and you realize that He is your glory, He is your honor, He's on high, then you're going to love and serve and submit to other people. And that's going to give you rest. And that's going to give you the greatness that you want. And other people are going to rest in you. And the kingdom of God is going to expand on the campus and at home in this city. And it's going to change things.